the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. This episode is a little different in format from previous episodes. I speak to surfing legend Sean Thompson and invited my good friend Aaron Leboutier to join us. Sean was Aaron's hero growing up, so he made it very clear I wasn't going to interview Sean without him. Sean Thompson is a fellow South African, previously a professional surfer, former world champion turned environmentalist, actor, author, and businessman. Today, Sean inspires thousands of people from all walks of life to write down and live by their own code and to ride the next wave of their life. In this episode, we discuss commitment, resilience, and connectivity. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Hey, Sean. Hey, Rodney. Hi there. How are you doing? Good, good. Nice to connect. Yeah, awesome. Well, hey, we really appreciate it. I got Aaron on the call because you are his childhood hero. Hey, Sean. <laughs> hey, Aaron. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. Good to see you. Good. You're looking very studious there with those wonderful old books behind you. <laughs> yeah, it's all a facade, mate. It's all for show. <laughs> yeah, so so Aaron said I couldn't do this uh, interview unless he was on, on the interview himself. So I'm going to include him. This is kind of new because normally up until this point, I've been doing them all on my own. So yeah, so Sean, what I thought was probably the best way to go about this is if, we, if you're happy with this, let's just jump straight into it. And then if we have a bit of time afterwards, we can just chat. How does that sound? Sure. Whatever, yeah, whatever works for you. I'm easy. All right, great. So here's my first question for you, Sean. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? <laughs> I think it means... <clears throat> taking responsibility for your ultimate path. And I think many of your listeners and perhaps you are not aware of this really dramatic statistic that more people die <clears throat> from poor decisions than anything else in the world. So there was an interesting academic study done a number of years back by a wonderful professor um, at Duke University. Um, and he concluded that a million Americans die every year from preventable deaths related to poor decisions. So our decisions are fundamental to whether we live or die. Um, so underlying this concept of relying on oneself is decision-making and decision-making tools. So if we can fundamentally create a way that we can make better decisions, <clears throat> it's gonna be a, a way that we can fundamentally rely on ourselves to live and not die. A million Americans, if 
563,000 Americans have died over the last year for COVID, but every year, 1 million Americans die from preventable deaths caused by primarily consumption-related decisions, bad eating, drugs, drunken driving, deaths. Uh, um, so self-reliance is, is, is at the core of, of what I talk about every single day to schools and universities and large uh, corporations. So it's, it's a very profound topic and a very important topic that I think doesn't uh, get the um, the heft that it should. Mm. Yeah, I think you brought up a really important point there. So I've got two things that are in my mind right now. Let's maybe just explore just for a little bit here. Why do you think it's not getting the attention that it should get? Because I agree with you 100% here. So I'm not sure how much you know about my background, but my doctoral studies was in mindfulness. So I'm very uh, acquainted with this idea of attention and lack thereof, you know, mindfulness and mindlessness. And so I'd like to hear from you. Why do you think it is that this doesn't really get the attention that it deserves? I think people think it's sort of airy-fairy. I think they think it's uh, like kumbaya. Um, I think that you have an incident, uh, a, a shooting incident, and it's a, a terrible tragedy and you have a 10 people die and the attention is focused um, on this particular issue of, of, of gun violence. Um, it's blasted across the media and yes, it's a terrible tragedy when one person dies from, from gun violence. But what about the million people that are dying from, from poor decisions? So how can we create this, this framework and how can we create this awareness that, that your own decisions and the decisions of people around you, um, it's, like, it's, it's like a life and death struggle every single day. You know, it, it reminds me, well, not it reminds me, but, but it brings to mind really interesting concept that every uh, a single time you get on a plane, I think of it, and you sit down in your seat and they talk about the, the emergency. And they say, put your mask on before you help others. Mm. Um, and only when you first help yourself, can you help others. So this concept of self-reliance, it's not selfishness, it's not selflessness, it's, it's fundamental to our survival, this concept of, of self-reliance. And only when we have figured out how we can help ourselves can we really um, help others. So I think it's a, it's a really important topic and I wish, I wish it would get more, more focus more uh, academic study. Yes, people talk about mindfulness and how it can make us flourish and how it can make us perform better, but it makes us live and not die. You know, there's that, that, that really raises edge that I, I think people walk on every day and, and we don't realize, we don't realize it. Yeah, I'm just thinking there as well, you know, there, there is, and it seems to be a, a, a level of 
um, lack of self-awareness that is very predominant in our modern society. Um, you know, this is, could be a very in-depth conversation, but one thing that I do see amongst a lot of people is this loss of meaning. They're not really sure what it is to live anymore in this modern world because there's so much coming at them all the time, so much information, so much buying for their attention. Everybody seems fragmented and split. It's like you just have to walk around the streets to see people just, they, they look like zombies, right? They seem mindless and just completely not focused and they don't seem to be going in the direction that they want to go in. I think part of the problem too is that what we're talking about isn't something that we can visually see. You know, when somebody has an injury, you can see it, it's, it's there, you know, you can see it, uh, you know, for your eyes, but these are things that are internal. And we've also kind of set the stage for, especially amongst men, that we don't want to talk about how we're feeling. So I'm not surprised then that a lot of the times, you know, people are not uh, being open. And I think that's part of the, the, the I think the, the, the big step to make is, you know, can we actually um, have the courage to actually speak about how we are feeling? Because until you can be open and vulnerable, I just don't think that you're going to make any of the inroads that we're suggesting here. Yeah, I think vulnerability and courage really go, go hand in hand along with humility. I mean, you have to... You have to be vulnerable to expose yourself. You have to have that courage to um, expose yourself. And you, you know, over the last year since, since uh, COVID started last March, um, I would do these, these live streams to, to thousands and thousands of people, to enormous companies, um, leading companies like Gilead Sciences for thousands of, of their team. They just invented the first uh, treatment for uh, COVID, remdesivir. And I would ask people, because I was really curious how they were feeling. You know, you say you see people and they look like zombies and people are crushed and beaten and broken. And I would ask people, I would ask the audience, I would say, please send me one word right at the beginning of my presentation before I spoke. Uh, just send me one word that describes how you're feeling right now. Just one. I just want one word. And these words would come in by text and by the web. And I create a word cloud on the fly using really cool technology, uh, Poll Everywhere. It's a brilliant technology. So you get thousands of words coming in and it would form this word cloud. So I've spoken to about 100,000 people over the last year through COVID and, and maybe seen 100,000 words in the form of word cloud. And, and I'll tell you what I have seen. Okay, so these are words from the inside out. These are words, anonymous words, because I don't know who the words are coming from, but the teams know that the words are coming from their team members, okay? So the words are, I call it a sad mindset, okay? Stress, anxiety, despair, disconnection. Those are the four big words. So those are the four, I mean, this is a really like simple way to look at the fundamental problems that people are facing in COVID. Just with the simple exercise, a simple like analysis, stress, anxiety, despair, disconnection. So how can you get people to be less stressed, to be less anxious, to be less despairing and more hopeful, to be less disconnected and more connected. And then I, I, you know, I go through my little program, it takes about two hours and 
And I hope that in some ways that I can help help people through this and just give them a different perspective and a tool. That's what I give. I give a different perspective and I give a tool that can help them become more self-reliant because my tool is a code, 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. And it's about personal power. It's about self. I will not anyone else but yourself. But through that code, writing that code, and then sharing that code with others, people reveal, I think, their best self. They reveal their fundamental purpose. And not only do they inspire themselves with their own code of self-reliance or their code of commitment, they inspire their team members too. And when you state, I will, in front of your team, man, you've got accountability there. Also, it's an, an incredible process of vulnerability because you are revealing who you are from the inside out. And that takes great courage. So it has all these sort of cascading effects. And it's, it's very cool when I do it because I just fell into this. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Yes, I've studied leadership. I went back to university and did the hard yards after my, my surfing and, and, and business career. Uh, I transitioned through into, into leadership philosophy. And it's wonderful to see um, how you can help people just with a perspective, some stories, and then two, a simple tool that they can use to create their own purpose, to create their own power and to create their own path. And that's, that's what I've been doing over the last few years. And I must say, it's incredibly fulfilling. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So I was wanted to ask you, you say that, you know, you're not a psychologist and you kind of fell into this, but is that entirely true? If, if we think back about your, you're a surfing legend and how much, how much of coming through that experience? And I mean, we can, we can say for, for, for definite that when we talk about surfing, that is the art of self-reliance, right? It's, it, I mean, it's all about you and it's about what you do and your connection to the sea. How much of that played into where you are now and what you're teaching? I mean, do you feel that that was a pinnacle part of your life that allowed you to be in the position that you are now to draw these lessons out and then offer them to other people in the environment that you now find yourself in? Uh, very much so. I mean, I think my, my surfing career um, informs every, every aspect um, of my life. Um, I certainly don't look at, look at it as... Um, a pinnacle of achievement. Certainly, I look at look at it as as one of the waves that I've ridden. I mean, I like to think that I've ridden three or four waves in my life. Certainly, the one wave was my surfing career and understanding how to maximize performance, uh, how to be incredibly disciplined, how to be committed, how to be creative in terms of helping create surfing uh, as a sport and, and, and a professional sport and, and helping create the surfing. Um, industry. It was just a wonderful part of my life, traveling and, and being exposed to different cultures and learning to respect other cultures and learning about myself too, really re learning about, you know, you take that incredibly bad wipeout and it's just such a great metaphor for life and business. And then deciding what to do, you're going to paddle in and you're going to paddle back out. And, and it's really about this concept of paddling back out, perseverance, resilience, self-reliance, um, with the fundamental understanding that, that only by paddling out can you catch the next wave. So there's this element of, of, of hope as well. So 
what I've found is that people love the metaphor of surfing. Surfing is kind of a little bit of a mysterious sport. It's not like football, baseball, rugby, cricket. It's not self-evident. It's not on TV every single day. It's not so cut and dried and sportified. You know, surfing has that sort of mystical, spiritual element to it. I mean, when I surfed and I was riding inside the tube, that, that spinning tunnel of water, which was sort of what I was most recognized for in surfing, um, you know, you do feel that you are operating on an elevated spiritual plane. You know, I've met and had a number of discussions with Miha Csikszentmihalyi, Miha, the famous uh, Hungarian uh, professor of psychology at uh, Claremont Graduate University. I've spoken there a number of times uh, with him about the whole concept of flow that, that, that he described. And I would say, man, this is just exactly like when I was surfing inside the, the tube, it was a state of absolute focus and concentration and sublime experience and a feeling of the wave is, is actually breaking in slow motion. And when you're surfing at your very, very best, you feel that you can curve that wall to your will. You can control time and space and you can actually influence the way those water molecules move. It's just this um, amazing moment. So surfing has really, um, I, I think, um, spoken to my soul and help me understand life better. And now I use simple surfing stories to help people explore themselves too. Uh, if, I, if I tell a story about a dreadful wipeout and paddling back out, you know, a story of perseverance and self-reliance, people are not going to go and paddle out at Waimea Bay and experience the same thing. But in through their lens, they can see an aspect of their life. Or if I talk about committing to the drop at the Banzai pipeline, the most dangerous wave in the world, and what you have to do to paddle over the edge and take three more strokes, people, people can go, oh, wow, man, maybe, uh, maybe this can relate to my life where I talk about spirituality and the sacred story circle and connecting with, with my son on the beach and speaking in a different form of language, spirit language, in a language of the soul, with no, nothing extraneous, no cell phones, nothing, just me and him and, and, and what that represents and how anyone can do that and can relate to people at this, at this sort of deep emotional level. People relate, even though their experience and my experience are, are different. Surfing has this appeal. I, I wrote this little card many years ago upon which I based a lot of my, my talks. It was called the Surfer's Code. <clears throat> and I encourage people now to write their own code, but I wrote 12 lines uh, to inspire a group of kids that were coming down to the beach. Uh, and one of the lines of the 12 is that, I will realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean. And uh, it's really, I think a beautiful line about, about connectivity. And certainly that's what I think as humans, we have suffered from over the last year, this disconnectivity. But still there's that realization that we are, you know, we are, we are, all, we are all connected and we all have great, great power Yes, to influence ourselves, but others as well. Yeah, for sure. So before we talk a little bit about some of the topics we said we were going to, I want to just see if Aaron has anything he wants to kind of bring into this and ask. I'm sure he has. Anything, Aaron? Yeah, I have one question. But before I, I do the question, I just want to 
revert back to the surface code because there was a few there, um, you know, never turn your back on the ocean, always paddle back out, which I think was a great story that you came up about when you were 19 in Wyomere when you had that kind of horrendous wipeout. Um, and also never paddle back in, always surf back <laughs> in, right? And, you know, as a, as a surfer, I, I, have, I have all those three I've done, I have turned my back on the ocean. And um, I have been scared and not paddled back out again. And I have been so scared when the swell has picked up at a low tide that I have paddled back in. So it, you know, and I, I can apply that not just metaphoric, um, not just realistically in surfing, but also in my life, right? I mean, I, there's been life experiences where I can make that relation, that relationship. So that the surface code for me was, is, it was fantastic, great idea. And I know it's helped a lot of people. Um, and I really must get hold of the, of the book because I know you've expanded that right into the 12 chapters. Yes. Um, so I, I, must, I must get hold of that. Um, okay, so my, my question relates back to we were talking about the word cloud. And there was one word that hadn't cropped up yet. And that word is passion. And, you know, when I think back to when I was a, when I was a kid looking up to you and, I, and I've, you know, followed your, your career from being a surfing legend, you know, I, I think of things like um, entrepreneurial passion. I think about individual dedication, commitment, perseverance in situations of, of high risk. Um, so this passion, which you obviously have in abundance, I, I want to get a sense of where it comes from. Does this passion come from your faith? Does his passion come from your father, from the story of him being attacked by the shark, from your, from your mother's story of all the bombings in World War II? Does it come from your special relationship with the ocean? You obviously share some deep spiritual relationship with the ocean that, that most people will never, ever, ever even minutely understand. So is it, is it a combination of all of it, or is there one that you feel is more stronger than the other? <laughs> That's an awesome uh, question, uh, Aaron, and, and I think it's a combination of all of those, everything that you, that you have um, spoken about. It's interesting when I, uh, uh, you know, when I talk to people, uh, I say, I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you a perspective, and I'm going to give you the code. But it's a perspective of passion, and purpose. Right. So <clears throat> passion is the fire, I think, for all of us. Uh, you know, if you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like you you like got a, a job of drudgery. It, it just makes life so much more exciting and so much more fiery. Um, <clears throat> I've got a good mate, one of my best mates, is a, is a very, very successful attorney. And uh, for many, many years, he lectured up at Stanford to the, to the law students. And uh, he said, oh, you know, Sean, I always used to tell, you, tell them a story about you. Uh, he said, I had a friend who was a famous surfer and uh, number one guy in the world. And, and I said to him, like, what do you attribute your success to? I said, you know, when I was surfing, I got to say, I competed on the tour for 16 years. I was the oldest guy to win. I was the youngest guy to win. Uh, at the time, I won more contests than anyone, but of course, all my records have been broken. And he said, but Sean told me I loved it more. And I did. i tell you what, I loved it more. I said, I thought I loved it more than anyone else in the world. I thought I surfed more than anyone else in the world, not to practice, <clears throat> because I loved it more. 
And I was fortunate in that I was able to find my passion early. I had parents that were both spiritual and faith, faith-based in their, in their own different ways, <clears throat> and also very trusting, both trusting of me traveling around the world when I was 15 years old by myself, but trusting of me to paddle out in Big Surf, paddle out at the same beach, 100 yards away from where my father had been attacked by a shark and nearly killed. So <clears throat> they, they trusted me. And perhaps it goes back to Rodney, you know, the focus of a lot of your work on self-reliance. This concept is when other people have, have confidence in your confidence, um, it makes them, I think, a lot more calm. I mean, my, my mom and dad were never the, the lecturing type. If I did badly in a competition, I was never on the beach and my father was never wagging his finger at me. You should have, would have, could have done this. Um, he was very much about, you got to enjoy it, but you've got to give it everything. And every heat, I think during my surfing career, I gave it everything I had. I never looked back on my shoulder and go, you know, I should have done this. I would have, I could have, would have. It was like I gave it. <clears throat> I gave it everything. And when I came in, if I lost, I just accepted it because I gave it. And I think perhaps passion has got a lot to do with that mindset. And also, I think I always had this purposeful mindset that, that, there was something bigger and more important than just winning contests and winning heats. I think the interconnectivity between myself, my sport, my community, my nation, uh, fans at large, there was always this tremendous respect that, that uh, I had. So it was a good question because there was a combination of, of everything that you mentioned. So, and, and just finally, um... You know, you talk about a story there, you just relayed. But my, my favorite story I heard from you, of course, you're a great storyteller, was um, One Eye, the break One Eye. Right about the, the wave, and you thought it was because it looked like, like One Eye. And then an old fisherman said to you, no, no, it's called One Eye because there's a Zambesi shark, and it goes onto its side, and you just see the One Eye popping out. Um, that was a that was a great story. I think you told that at one of the, one of the lectures in the U.S. somewhere. But it was a it was a great story because it encompassed a lot of things. You you don't like to surf where there's no shark nets, the shark nets. But you went out there, you knew there were no shark nets, and then you had that experience with the dolphins. And I mean, the whole story is is a, just a great prelude to any presentation. Yeah, I haven't actually I haven't told that story that story for a while, but. <clears throat> You know, when, when I think about when I think about that, it's also um, it's a pretty cool uh, allegory about um, about perspective, about about how all of us, you know, we can look at the same thing, but we we can look, we, but we see different realities, um, and certainly in the United States, with incredible polarization here in politics between Republicans and Democrats. <clears throat> you know, people look at the same thing, but they 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 see it they see it differently. Um, 
So what's what's been super cool with the work that I've been doing <clears throat> is that I think by having people reveal their purpose and reveal their best selves in a very non-threatening way, yes, <clears throat> there's a vulnerability associated with it, and yes, there's an a, accountability associated with it. But but when you reveal it who you are and who you will be. People realize that they're all the same, that yes, we might have different perspectives, but when you see what people write, you see the words, you know, and words have like unbelievable power to transform. Before anything, it's the thought, then the words, then the action. Um, When people realize that they're the same, I think it can create a unifying force. It can create this this unity between them that if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, it doesn't matter if you're black, you're white, you're brown, you're you're Hindu, you're Muslim, you're Jew, you're Catholic. The religion has no impact on this internal force, this power that we have. And the power that we have it's directed in two ways. This is what I found. Okay. So, so Rodney, you've been an academic and thought and written. And, um, but this is what I have found from what others have written. So I've read millions of lines of code from people. And everyone writes beautiful words of poetry, power, passion. I mean, it's like I'll have faith. I'll pray, I will be a better father, I will forgive, I will forgive myself. I mean, amazing words, I'll be better tomorrow than I am today. So people write beautiful words and and every line is different, but people only write two lines of code. And this this is who we are as humans. And this is really related to, I think, your research, Rodney, and and your particular focus. So people write, number one, I will be better. I will be better. That's what people write. This is the human desire, motivation, mission. I will be better. And they write, I will help others be better. That's what everyone writes. One of those two things, I will be better, I will help others be better. And it's wonderful to see that this is our life purpose. Our life purpose defined by, by those two simple lines. And when people see this and realize it, they realize that, man, we, we're way more connected than we are disconnected. And it's wonderful to be able to, to be given the opportunity to do this in this time of COVID, in this time of, of disconnection to help bring bring people together it's just it's it's i'm i'm so thankful i often think man i got the best job in the world (laughs) and i had i was a pro surfer for 16 years that was a i thought that was the best job in the world but but what i do now it's it gives me the same kind of um a feeling of, of of fulfillment and excitement uh and the feeling of of accomplishment yeah what I draw out of your stories and the way that you expressed yourself when you were surfing 
was that where I see a lot of people go wrong is they tend to measure their self-worth against other people where really what you were doing, it was more about you and your own personal challenge. And I think that also speaks to this idea of where we're talking about people not having the clarity of mind is that oftentimes they're living outside of themselves and looking at what other people have or what they wish they could have based on other people's achievements and they lose touch with themselves. And I think people need to come back to themselves and be personally challenged, which speaks to these ideas that you've talked about in, in your books and obviously in your talks where you talk about, you know, part of getting clear that clarity of mind is having commitment, resilience, connectivity. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about that, like just unpack that a little bit for us. Why commitment? Why resilience? And why connectivity? Why are those three things do you feel are paramount? You know, you're very, you're very uh, perceptive, uh, Rodney, in, um, in, in, in what you say. Um, and I think, you know, as a surfer, I realized at a very early age is that there's only so much control that you have over the situation, uh, particularly regarding competing against someone else in a heat. I mean, you know, you can be, you, you, you could be a way better surfer and the other guy's just going to get that incredible wave that's going to win him. He, so, so you, you, you do have this, uh, this humility and also this awareness that you don't have absolute control, but you have absolute control of yourself uh, and you have your absolute control of your attitude to what befalls you whether you have success or misfortune, you know, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Viktor Frankl in that wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about, you know, the fundamental choice we have in life is our attitude. Yeah. Um, and, and that book, I've read a number of times, and certainly I read that book when I lost my beautiful son a number of times, and it gave me a lot of um, hope and, and clarity in, in, in a way forward from the darkness um, into the light. But I think when, when you talk to people, I think I like to keep it pretty simple and I like to sort of um, focus on, on what's important. And the three stories I tell, the first story, I always tell the story of, uh, of perseverance, like having the bad wipeout, especially in the context of what's happening today when people are getting punished. <clears throat> Some people are prospering incredibly during this time of COVID. Some people are just having a dreadful time. They're out of work. Um, and they're just cut off and adrift. So I want to tell a story and show people that you can have the terrible wipeout, but you can still paddle back out. And that's where you're going to find the next wave. So with the concept of perseverance and resilience is also this concept of hope. You know, you're only going to be able to get your next wave if you paddle back out. And sometimes you've got to force yourself. You've got to look deep. You've got to find your internal reserves and you've got to go forward. You've got to force yourself. And I remember, you know, I related it back to my story when I was 19. I was terrified. I had just had a, the worst wipeout of my life. And it was easy to paddle in 50 yards to the beach or paddle out 300 yards back to where these 25 
waves were breaking at, at, at Waimea Bay. <clears throat> and I think those, those decisions that we make in those situations ultimately uh, define us. So that's the, the, the resilience, perseverance, hope story I, I, I love to tell. And I think it's really important for, for people to hear that other people have been in similar situations and they've managed to survive. And perhaps my perspective might help you. Then commitment. Um, I think this whole code that I developed so many years ago, and now I, I get people to write their own code. The first two words, I will, are words of, of, of absolute commitment. When you say I will, you're making a promise to yourself. But also, if you are in a team and you're revealing your code to others, also you have that accountability. So people are going to be going, well, he said he's going to be a better team player, or she said she's going to be a better team player, or, or they said that they're going to be focused on environmental sustainability, or they said that they're going to be uh, more spiritual. You know, when you say it and you commit to it, it creates incredible, incredible power. And commitment is the way through fear. And this path of using commitment to pass through the barrier of fear is what we call courage. But it's commitment first. It's not like he's courageous, he's courageous. It's all about committing. Like I thought when I was sitting out there and I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and I was sitting out of the Banzai pipeline, the most dangerous wave in the world, trying to find the courage to, to paddle over the edge. And it's not like you just find the courage, but you can be committed. And all I did is I paddled and paddled and paddled and I took three more strokes. And that commitment, that physicality, that just one, 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 three more strokes, took me over the, the, the edge and ultimately can be identified as courage. It's the commitment that comes before one looks back in retrospect and says it was courage. I think courage is, 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 is kind of the retrospective evaluation of the physicality associated with committing to that step. So for me, it was three more strokes for, 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 for other people that might, you know, it'll be something completely different, but it's that I will, it's that mindset of I will take off, I will paddle over the edge, I will, whatever your um, I will is. <clears throat> and then the last story, the, the one about connectivity, the third story, I think is vitally important for, for what we've all been experiencing over the last year. Like I say, people say, Sad mindset, stress, anxiety, despair, disconnection. It's like we've been so disconnected. My mom's 91 years old. I mean, I speak to her on the phone every day. I haven't seen her for a year. I'm going to see her this coming weekend for the first time over, um, over Passover. But it's like, how can you bring people together? How can you, how can you connect them? And for me and my work, I believe that getting everyone to write and share their code can bring them together because they can see that, like I said, while we're different, we're fundamentally, we're all the same. 
And I talk about this concept of spirit language. You know, speaking in the language of emotion and love. And, you know, people think, oh, it's kumbaya. It's like, you know, what is this BS that... When I talk about a, about my, my, my late son and I um, at this beautiful beach in Santa Barbara when just the two of us were on the beach together and he built this circle of stones in the sand and inside the, that circle, he built two more circles. So we had three concentric circles of stones, just the two of us built together on the sand on a lonely beach. We were the only people on the beach. And then inside the innermost circle, he put down two rocks and got a stick. And then he said, dad, this is a sacred story circle. And we're going to tell sacred story circle, sacred stories inside the sacred story circle. He said, there's just one rule. Whoever's got the stick tells the story and the other person listens. So we sat inside this circle, father and son, no one else on the beach, just the two of us. And we just told each other stories and I held the stick and he held the stick and it, it was amazing. And people can see the amazing love that I shared with my son. And they realize that those are the best moments in life. And they rare and they are rare for, for, for only one reason, because we've got these bloody cell phones that and, and devices, yeah, they can that yes, they can bring us together, but they can also disconnect us. So those moments when we just get together with, with each other and we speak in spirit language are like so important. And my son and I, what we spent an hour on the beach and it was maybe one of the best hours I've ever spent in, in my life. And then, and then when, we, when we went home that night, and then Aaron's heard the story, we, we went home up to, the, up to my house. I put my key in the lock and Matthew dug in his pocket and pulled out one of the stones from the sacred story circle. And he said, Dada, you know all the stories we told today? They all inside that stone. How about that? And you put the stone outside our, our house. And, and I think it's just, all of us, I think, have this incredible responsibility to connect others and, and to be this positive force, because we've all got great power, every single one of us, every single one of us, through our family networks, through our work networks, through our social networks, we have incredible power to influence, and incredible power for good or for evil. And, and when, I, when, I, when I talk to, to kids, and sometimes the large corporates as well, I say, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Who said that? And people go, ah, oh, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, um, Martin Luther King, Jack. And I go, <laughs> it comes from Spider-Man, baby. <laughs> That's Uncle Ben, <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> and everyone, everyone laughs. But it, it is a, it's a wonderful statement that with great power, comes great responsibility. And in today's world, with the interconnectivity and social media, we all have this great power and, and it's up to us to exercise it as we see fit for the force of good. I think that's beautiful, Sean, especially, you know, sharing stories. I mean, I've realized, I mean, I'm, I'm in a similar situation. I'm on the Isle of Man right now. My kids are in South Africa. I haven't seen them over a year because of COVID. 
And, you know, as we've been talking and just kind of reflecting on the times, the best times that we had, it was those times where they were quizzing me about my life and I found myself telling stories. And it was through the stories that they learned the most important lessons, you know, so you realize that it's not when you're being the lecturer father, you know, I'm lecturing you about what you're doing right and wrong. Actually, where the real true lessons, the life-changing lessons come in is in those moments of story, the moments of where you are talking about the experiences that you've had through your life. And they, they'll ask for those stories over and over again. My little guy, he would always ask for the same stories. And I'm like, but I've told you that like 50 times. No, no, but I want to hear it again. You know, dad, tell me that same story. And that's, that's, that's pretty cool. And it's, it, there's a very important lesson there. I think we all have our stories. And if we share them, that is the place where we can really learn from each other and share our humanity as you, as you described it. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never thought that, uh, that, um, my life would go down this path. I, um, you know, when, when my wife, Carl and I, we've been married for 34 years now, when, when we lost our son, when we lost Matthew, everything, uh, you know, everything changed and, and, and uh, you just sort of reevaluate who you are, you know, where you're going to go, what you're going to do, what you're, what your life purpose is. It's, <clears throat> it's really a, it was really a, a time of change and, and, and transformation for me. And, um, you know, about an hour before Matthew died, he, he died playing this terrible game that he learned about at school. It's called the choking game. Kids wear school ties and he was at my old school just for a semester with my wife and, in, you know, it was a private school and they all wore school ties. Um, he read me this essay that he'd written at school, a beautiful essay. He just read it to me over the phone. And I said, it was about tube writing. And it was so perceptive and so, so eloquent. I just thought it was beautiful. I said, I said, Matthew, who wrote that? Where'd you get it from? He said, Dad, I wrote it. I wrote it from my school essay today. And, you know, he'd written four words in it that really jumped out at me. The light shines ahead. And they were just amazing words. And those words have certainly become like a mantra for me. And they're wonderful words for today's times that the light shines ahead, that, that we will pass through this. Um, and that we're, he was talking about surfing towards that light when you're inside the tube. Um, and it's a great, it's a great metaphor. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that you know, anyone listening to that gets, gets some resonance from those beautiful words, that the light shines ahead, because certainly they have been like a beacon. They've been like a light for me. No, I appreciate you sharing that story, Sean. That's, that's, that's an amazing story. Aaron, do you have anything you want to add at this point? Because we're getting close to the end. I, only that I, I, was, I found um, some research from 2020 on virtual reality headsets where they took a group of participants and put them through a surfing experience on, on VR versus another 
group that obviously weren't doing the experience. And the people doing the surfing on the virtual reality had a significant uh, decrease in their brain waves to theta level. I can never remember. I think it's it's gamma, beta, alpha, theta, and delta, right? Um, gamma being like the complete crazy frenzy, like psychotic red mist, and then theta, delta being what you release when you're sleeping. But the research is suggesting that when you go surfing, you decrease your brain activity to a state of theta level sleep. Um, I think I would say it would depend on the type of surf. I'm sure, Sean, 19 in Waimea, you were at gamma level, right? Psychotic red mist kind of frequency. You were definitely not at like stoned theta level. Um, but the point is, what was interesting and something that I try and do at the retreat in Thailand, and, I, and I've seen it happen in front of me, is you just take someone in the ocean. doesn't matter if it's one foot, two foot, three foot. And you just see everything just evaporate from them. The stress of life, everything, they smile. And when they come out from an hour of surfing, yeah, I mean, I, of course, I, I don't have the technology to take, take the scan of their brain, but you can feel the energy from them that they are just completely at ease. And this must be something that you've experienced all your life, right? Going in with maybe stress and then coming out after a session feeling just, you know, at ease. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you've really identified it uh, really well. I'd like to look at that, that research. I mean, there's a moment there when you walk along the beach and it happens at every single surf break and it happens to every single surfer in every single session. So you, there's a moment that you walk along the beach, whether it's hard packed sand, whether it's lava rock, but there's a moment where there's a transition from the land to the ocean. And there's that moment of weightlessness, even though it might be a millisecond, there's that moment of weightlessness, there's that transition, wow. And then you land and it's like your board floats down in the water and then it floats back up and then the whole horizon opens up and that's when everything is left behind and you paddle out to that next wave. That feeling, man, that feeling is so sublime. And I think everyone has that moment. It's almost like an epiphany. It's this feeling of, there's just possibility and openness and hope and joy and all rolled up into that just singular moment when you just paddle out to the open horizon. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful time. Yeah. And I think it's no coincidence. I'm just thinking to my experiences that, you know, at that point you tend to run into the ocean and, and in the moment you throw your board over that, that first bit of white water and just land. And then the first scoop, of what you know and then the second scoop and then the first duck dive and then and that's it you're transformed right i mean that's it you you're 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 in the zone i think it's no coincidence that miha chiksen miha called it flow uh, and i thought that it was so descriptive of of the surfing experience i had a brand that i started when i was about 23 years old it was called instinct Hey, uh, I used to I used to wear it every day. Uh, if if of, I didn't have an instinct sweater on or an instinct t-shirt, I got beaten up at school. I mean, you had to have an instinct t-shirt. Yeah, instinct was a popular <laughs> it was a popular brand, but I called it instinct 
because the best moments in surfing are when you're inside the tube and the best tubes happen when you're operating on instinct. And I called it instinct. This was before uh, Miha had written about flow. I called it instinct, the inner rhythm, because I just felt that, you know, surfing is this sort of state of just absolute inner rhythm. And instinct really represented this uh, inner rhythm. And it was interesting to see and meet him and chat and, and see how that how his research just so closely parallels the surfing uh, experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I mean, I only just started surfing, so I mean, a couple of times, and I loved it. But for me, my flow is on the mat as a martial artist and doing jujitsu. I get, I mean, I can see the parallels, right? So when you're talking, I can make that connection because I've been in that, that same space. It's amazing to be there. And so it just shows you that it's not only in surfing, it's in other experiences too, right? Very much so. I mean, I have a friend who's a professor at, um, at our, uh, Rotterdam School of Management. It's one of the top schools in, um, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, and she's a, um, it was like number one in the world in Taekwondo. And, and, you know, we've spoken about the similar experiences that, that she has. So uh, I think in any artistic sporting endeavor, you can feel that sort of that state of flow and that state of, of connectivity, mind, body and soul. So, Sean, as we come to the end of this, because we want to be respectful of your time, can you leave us with last words of wisdom? What would you want people to leave the session together with taking it into their life? So I'm, I'm really going to make a plea to anyone that's listening, listening that wants to make these 45 minutes worthwhile. Is pick up a sheet of paper uh, and sit with your family. Sit with the people that you love most, your wife, your husband, your children, and give everyone a sheet of paper and 15 minutes, put in a little timer and you've got 15 minutes. Together you do it and you write your code. 12 lines, every line beginning with I will. Just write anything, write what you will. And then once you finish the exercise, 15 minutes, one at a time you stand up and you read it to the others in your group. And if it's only you, Write your code and share it with someone you love or, or share it with someone um, who has meaning to you. I like to say that this code is open source code. It's there to be shared. It's there to be used in any way, shape or form that, that people want to do it. But do the exercise because I know that my words your words, Rodney, your words, Aaron, they're going to be blown away. The, the south wind is going to blow. The north wind is going to blow. The west wind is going to blow. The east wind is going to blow. Going to blow all the words that we've said over the last 45 minutes away. But when you write something down, when you write down your code, it's there forever. I mean, I wrote my code, my surface code, I don't know, 25 years ago, and I still carry it around with me in my wallet. And when things go sideways, as we all know, things go sideways in life, often. I read my words, and my words give me great power. My words. That's why when you write your code, it's not Sean Thompson's words. 
It's your words. Those words, I promise you, I will absolutely unequivocally state, your words can give you great power. And your words can give other people great power and inspiration and upliftment again. So write your code, 12 lines. Every line begins with I will. And connect with me on LinkedIn. Say how's it. Absolutely. That's powerful, Sean. Thanks. I appreciate it. That was awesome. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.